This is Lead Minister Nathan Pelahowski of RSCC. I just want to welcome you to the RSCC podcast. Here's something I want you to know. I want you to know that you matter. Not because I say you matter, but because God says that you matter when he sent his son Jesus to die for us. Today I hope this message challenges you and encourages you to take your next faith step. Well, welcome to Thursday night once again. Don't you love that music? It's like you're getting ready for something exciting, pumped up, right? You want to go lift weights. But hey, I was thinking before I even get into this, like I, I'm, I'm the kind of guy like this week has not gone as I liked it to go. Anybody a planner? Like you just like things to go the way you want them to. And I'm sitting here and we're, we're worshiping, but meanwhile I'm thinking, man, we're going to have some upset people if I don't get this projector fixed by Sunday. And then it just, God just told, you know, spoke to me. He's like, dude, it doesn't matter about this. It doesn't matter about this. It's about what we're doing in here. So it's not on the screen. It's not perfect. And you know what's funny? Today's title of the sermon is called Expect the Unexpected. So I should have been ready for this. But we are in week two of Judges, and we don't care if it's on that or not, and we thank Michelle and Trudy for being here. But we are in week two of this series we're calling Judges, and if you missed last week, I'll kind of catch you up. The Israelites uh, have gone into the promised land, uh, so the Israelites are God's chosen people, and there are 12 distinct tribes, and these 12 tribes are coming together, and there's kind of, the way it's supposed to work is they have no king, so they're they're supposed to go to God, and and God is their king, and if they obey, everything's going to be okay, but they don't obey, obey, and everything's not okay. So that's kind of where we're at. And and then because they don't obey, a lot of chaos happens and a lot of things go wrong. So the kind of catchphrase is, if you obey, they're okay. And and last week we left off with a whole generation turning away from God and not knowing God. So we're going to continue. And today we're going to look at the second judge. And I'm going to tell you this story. I loved, I loved, I loved, I loved when when I first heard about it when I was in high school. I'm like, I can't believe this is in the Bible because this should actually be a movie. Like, it is awesome. It's action-packed. It's got people getting stabbed. Like, it's all my kind of stuff. But it's in the book of the Bible, Judges. But before we get there, I want to let you in on my mind for a second. And that's a scary place. So, are there any things that you've ever just seen in life, someone doing something, something happening, and you're like, that doesn't make sense, right? Have you ever been there? Well, let me share a couple of things with you that, that I have. There's going to be like four or five things, and, and the first picture is going to be right here. People who do this, like just answer your emails or erase your emails. I, I don't get how people can have a thousand, ten thousand emails. Anybody do this, right? I, I don't understand it. And then there's pizza, right? I, I love pizza, but the box is square. The, the pizza is a circle and the slice is a triangle. Like, what are they trying to do here? Like, it doesn't make sense to me. And then there, there's this, right? I've always kind of wondered this. Why do people say heads up when they want you to duck? Like, what, where'd that come from? And then there, there's this. It's like, I love candy. Like, my nickname is Willy Wonka, right? I love candy. And it's called fun size. What is fun about getting less candy, right? Fun size doesn't make sense. It's not fun size at all. And then we got one more, I believe, in ranch. Like, why does everything taste better with ranch on it? Like, I don't get it. And then I could put math up here. Math doesn't make sense. The English, you know, language doesn't make sense. This is probably my favorite one. Anybody a ranch person out here though? Like I love ranch. Everything in life, basically, I don't eat barbecue, but everything tastes better with ranch. Like, I don't know. It's just like, it might be manna from God. It might be what we, you know, we, in heaven, there might be fountains of ranch. I'm not sure, but everything tastes better with Hidden Valley Ranch. But when it comes to our faith, 
There's something else that doesn't always make sense. And the way I say it is sometimes the way God works doesn't seem to make sense. And, and we know his plan is better and we know he, he, his plan is perfect, but it doesn't always make sense. Like why does he answer some prayers for some people and, and not prayers for other people? You look around and you see everything going on and you're like, God, this doesn't make sense what, why you're doing it. And you're almost like if I was God, like I would do things a little bit different. But one thing that's always stood out to me is what doesn't really make sense with God is the people that he chooses to use in the Old Testament. Like the very few of them are the people that we would expect. And it's like God's catchphrase it could be what, the same catchphrase for my favorite TV, one of my favorite TV shows, Big Brother. Expect the unexpected. So that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to expect the unexpected. We're going to look at a wild story. And it's going to be fun. And we're going to go through it. And we're going to talk about it. So let's kind of go with it. If you've got your Bible, we're in Judges chapter 3. We are looking at verses 20 through basically 30. And we'll start off here. It says, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did evil in the eyes of the Lord, the Lord gave King Eglon of Moab power over Israel. So they, they, because they did this went through this cycle of doing bad things and disobeying and not everything's not okay because they don't obey. The, the, now they are taken over by another, you know, king. Getting the Ammonites and the Mechilites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel and they took possession of the city uh, of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. So the Israelites, they go through this cycle where they disobey, there's consequences, and then there's deliverance, and there's peace. Disobey, consequences, deliverance, then peace. And because they go through this cycle, we, we find them doing the disobeying part again. They're not doing what they're supposed to do. And, and I think this is important to just talk about for you and me. Is we're a lot like the Israelites. We're, we're tempted to say like, hey, we're nothing like them, and we're not, we don't act like them or look like them. But we do the same thing. And, 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 you know, we have false idols and we worship things we're not supposed to worship. We disobey and, and everything's not okay. And all any of us had to do, including the Israelites, is obey, God, obey God and everything would be okay, right? If we did that, our lives would be a lot better. Our lives would be less complicated. All we have to do is obey and everything would be okay. But we don't. What do we do instead? Well, well we give in the temptations, uh, uh, maybe addictions or sexual sins or whatever it may be. And, and then we give in the temptation. And just like the Israelites did. And, attempt, and what we don't realize about temptation is giving in the temptation equals trading in what you want most for what you want now. What do the Israelites want most? Well, I believe what they wanted most deep down was to get in this promised land, to do whatever they wanted, but uh, the, and have a good life, a life that God would bless. That's what they wanted most, but they traded in what they wanted to do now for what they wanted to do most. And that's what happens in our life sometimes. We trade in temptation for what we want most. We, we trade that in for what we want now. And what we want now often isn't what we ultimately want most. So they end up in this cycle. And it says because of this, they, they've been taken over by a king named King Eglon. And history tells us this king was a bad man. Talks about raping the Israelites, suppressing the Israelites, making them pay a tax to them that they never should have had to pay. He was not a good man. So for 18 years, right, the, for 18 years, they're under power of this bad king. We think four years under a bad president's tough. 18 years, right? So 18 years, they're under this bad king, and, and they don't know what to do. And, and so they, they get to this point where they're like, I don't like the way things are. I don't like the way things are going. So what do they do? 
They go through their cycle, they disobey, and then they go to God. So they turn to God, and, and this is what God does, right? And this is what God does to our lives. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord. So after they did all these bad things, they cried out. And he gave them a deliverer. So here's the second judge. This is our first judge we're looking at, but it's the second judge in Israelites' history. And his name is Ahud, a left-handed man, the son of Gura, the Benanite. So here's where we're introduced to this man right here. It's a weird name, Ahud, right? No one ever names their kid this name, right? I don't know why, but I've never run into anybody who named their kid this. And we don't know a lot about him. We do know, we're going to find out real quick, that he is an underdog. He's kind of like Rocky Balboa, Rudy, around here, the Cincinnati Bengals, right? Like underdogs, like no one expects to do anything. No one expects to win. But what we know most about him is he's a left-handed man, and he's the second judge of Israel. Now, how many of you are left-handed people? Anybody? All right, a couple of you, right? So about 12% of the world is left-handed, right? So some famous people, Barack Obama, George W. Bush, Leonardo da Vinci, Albert Einstein, the great Tim Tebow, Tim Tebow Babe Ruth, they're all left-handed, right? And what, what else do we know about left-handed people? Well, left-handed people are statistically more likely to be a genius. Like, I didn't know that, right? So if you're left-handed, it says left-handed people are statistically more likely to have an IQ over 140. I don't know if that's good or bad, but apparently it's a genius, right? You, uh, one thing I saw is that they said left-handed people somehow, I don't know why, can see better underwater, right? I've never tested that out, but they can see better underwater. It is said that left-handed for sports is kind of the element of surprise. You got the southpaw, you know, pitching and, you know, jump shots or, or left-handed quarterback, right? So being left-handed today is not all that bad, is it, right? It's kind of cool. But back in his day, our man right here, Ahud's day, it was a big deal. He would have been seen as weaker, as lesser. The way the Hebrews constructed where it says he's a left-handed man, it, it literally is talking that like for whatever kind of loose translation is he can't use his right hand. We don't know why. We don't know if it's on purpose. Some people think maybe it was because he was born that way or had an accident. But he's a left-handed man. M many people weren't left-handed. And if you were left-handed, you were seen as weaker, less than, and just not a threat to anybody. So here's what we see, that the Israelites sent him, this left-handed man, with a tribute to, to Eglon, king of Moab. So the Israelites are having to pay this tax, and, and they, send, they send our boy Ahud, the judge, to pay this tax. Now, we don't know if he always does this, if he occasionally does this. It seems like this is something that he may always do. So he brings this tax or this tithe to, to Moab, and what's interesting is that most scholars say that this, this tax that he is bringing the king, the king probably was the tithe that they were supposed to give to the, the, the priest and to the God. So they give him this thing, but so he packs up all the, the taxes and all the money, all the animals, right? And a foreign king is now making the Israelites pay taxes for land that God was trying to give them. Right? So they're in this bad situation, right? They're paying taxes for land that they're supposed to have already, right? They're not supposed to do this. And, and so Ahud kind of gathers up all the taxes, all the animals, and he goes to the king. But here's where it gets interesting. That's not the only thing he's packing, right? He's packing some heat. We read that he made a double-edged sword, right? About a cubit, so about 18 inches long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. So our boy's packing some weapons, right? He's like, hey, I'm going to bring this weapon with me. It's a double-edged sword. I think that's interesting. 
where else in the scripture does it talk about a double-edged sword? So this sword, this double-edged sword is going to be the, the instrument of judgment that God uses with Ahad. But where else in scripture does it talk about a double-edged sword? Well, in the New Testament, in Hebrews, it says this. For the war, word of God is alive and active, sharper than what? Any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. And what does it do? It's so interesting. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. So Ahud has a sword. It's about a cubic long, right? 18 inches. And he strapped it to his right side under his thigh. Why would he do it his right side? Well, if you had a sword and you're left-handed, you draw from your right, right? If you're right-handed, you draw from your left. This is where it gets interesting. Where would most people in this time weapon be? This side. Because why? They're right-handed. So already we see some interesting stuff that he's packing a double-edged sword. He's packing some heat. And he gets to this king and we'll continue to read. And, and this is what happens. He presented the tribute. So he gave him the money. And... <laughs> to the king who was what? A very fat man. I love that. Like, like the, you, you tell your mama you're going to be in the Bible and then you read this verse about you and it tells you that, hey, you were a very fat man, right? So he was a very fat man. You can't make this up. And after Ahud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way those who had carried it. But on, re but on reaching the stone of images, what is going on here? He went back to Eglon and said, okay, your majesty, I have a secret message for you. The king said to his attendants, leave us, and all, they all left. So he pays the tribute, and he says, king, I got something else for you. And the king is a very fat man, remember, so he's like, hey, you got some pizza rolls, you got some Hot Pockets, what, what do you got for me? Like, well, what do we know, what do we, what do you got? So he's like, he's like, Ahad, Ahad's like, send away your bodyguards, and I'll show you, it's a secret. So he sends away his bodyguards, right? And this is what happens. Again, this is where it gets crazy. We're not making this up. Ahud then approached him while I was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace and said, I have a message from you, from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ahud reached with his left hand, again, he's a southpaw, and he drew the sword from his right thigh and plunged it into the king's belly. Okay, it, it doesn't end here. Even the handle in after the blade, and his bowels discharged. Ahud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. Can't make this up. Like, this was an awesome story to read about in, in, you know, in junior high and high school. So here's what happens. This king didn't even see it coming. Ahud says, I got a secret message for, for you from God. The king didn't know what it was, what was going to be. And all of a sudden, he reaches on his right thigh with his weak, because he has a, a weak right hand, with a strong hand, and he stabs the king. The king would have saw Ahud as so weak that he says, you know what? I don't need, even need my bodyguards by me anymore. Don't need them. So he sends them out. He would have been seen as so weak that the king would have never expected this man to stab him. Ahud was seen as weak, strange, and not a threat. And God used this weak, left-handed, strange man to stab the king. And it says something inter interesting. It says the king was so fat that when he stabbed this 18-inch sword into him, it's the fat kind of enclosed around it and his bowels discharged I'll let you use your imagination what that meant, right? So it's a, it's a bloody, gory situation. I kind of think of like Jabba the Hutt and Star Wars in this whole encounter, right? But this is what happens. And, and then Ahud kind of runs out. And then we, the story continues, right? So Ahud escapes. And after he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. 
They said he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. Why did they say that? Well, you can add two and two together. They probably could smell something. What could they smell? Probably the bowel discharge, right? So they waited to the point of embarrassment, but when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them, and there they saw the Lord to, had fallen to the floor dead. So Ahud escapes, and they smell something, so they're like, we're going to wait for the king because he must be going to the bathroom. And it says they waited and they waited and they waited until the point of embarrassment, to the point where they said, no way someone can go to the bathroom this long. And they run in, they run into the room, and they see that their fat king is dead. Right? It's crazy. It's a crazy story. Like, this is in the Bible. And, and this is, so they're freaking out. And this is kind of what happens by this time. Ahud is long gone. So he runs back to the Israelites. And we're going to see in verse 28 here. He, sa he runs to the Israelites. He says, follow me, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. So they followed him and took possession of, uh, of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab. And they allowed no one to cross over it. And at this time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong, but not one escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. What's this all, what, what's going on here? Well, Ahud goes back to the Israelites, and he leads them in the battle. They kill about 10,000 men, and they get the land that they're supposed to have. And for about 80 years, it says, there was peace in the land, right? And then you're going to see next week, after the 80 years, they're going to need another judge. But this story is wild. The story is interesting. And many of us are like, why in the world is this in the Bible? Because you're thinking right now, okay, how does this apply to me? Some of you are left-handed, but I don't think you're bringing heat with, your, with a sword today. None of us are probably going to ever go stab a fat king, right? Uh, that's pro probably can count that out. So how does this apply to us? Well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at two separate areas where, where this applies to us. One area we're going to look at is what I want to do is we're going to look at a bigger narrative going on in Scripture. And I think it's important. So when we look at the Old Testament and what it points to, there's a bigger narrative going on. And then the second thing we're going to look at is how it actually applies to us every day and what we can take home from it. So let's go to this first one. The first thing we, we see is that God uses the unexpected to do the unexpected. God uses the unexpected to do the unexpected. And what I mean by that is that he uses people in his story to do unexpected things. People that no one expects. But in this story, we, we see something really important. We see a trajectory that happens, throughout, that, that happens in the book of Judges that ultimately is a trajectory that you can kind of see throughout Scripture. Judges starts with Joshua. What was Joshua? He was a strong, powerful man. And then remember, the way this book is constructed in Judges, every, it goes from bad, it goes from pretty good, okay, bad to worse. So the, the first couple judges we read about are the best judges, and then by the time we get to the last judge, he's the worst judge. So we got Joshua, then a couple pages in, we got Ahud, and we already see that Ahud has some weaknesses, right? He, he's left-handed, he he's, can't use his right hand, and so he doesn't look like what power is supposed to look like. And then next week, we're going to look at Deborah, and she's seen as weak. Why is she seen as weak? Simply because she's a woman, so they did not expect any power to come from her. In a couple weeks, we'll look at a man named Gideon. What was Gideon? He was from the smallest tribe, and he was fearful. 
And then we're going to get to, finally we'll get to a man named Samson, who on the outside, he, he kind of looks like Dwayne the Rock to Johnson with long hair, right? He's tough, he's big, he's strong. But he's ultimately the, the worst because he's spiritually the weakest and he, he just gives in all kinds of issues. So there's a trajectory that's going on in Judges that points a trajectory of why we need Jesus. So what we have is in, in the book of Judges, we're going from strength to weakness. We're going to strength from weakness. So it is going down and down and down and down from strength to weakness. Well, why is this important? Well, to tell you why this is important, I, I want to use a scripture or a quote from a man named J.D. Greer. And this is what he says. What this story ultimately points to is to the most unexpected and left-handed, meaning not just left-handed by nature, but left-handed and weak and unexpected. But what it points to is the, the most left-handed person of all, Jesus, the unlikely Savior. So you can see this narrative that what this book is kind of doing is it's foreshadowing the type of Savior that God will ultimately use one day. There's a prophet, and his name was Isaiah, and he prophesied about Jesus coming. Listen to what he said. He says this, he's talking about Jesus. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and looked like a root out of a dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire, that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from the womb who people would hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. This is, this is Jesus he's talking about. Now when, he, when I think of a savior, if I was just to draw one, I'm going to draw a big, tall man with a beard, big muscles, buff, you know, physically commanding, good-looking, kind of like Captain America. I'm like, that is our Savior. God's like, hey, let me draw you a better picture. He's not going to be good-looking. There's going to be nothing about his physical appearance that draws you to him, actually. He's going to be poor. He's basically going to be born around animals in a cave in a barn area. There's going to be nothing that makes you desire him on the outside. He's not going to be physically commanding, right? You're going to look at him, and you're not going to expect this guy to be the Savior. But I'm going to do the unexpected to this unexpected Savior. And like Ahud, Jesus was unexpected and didn't look like anyone thought he would. Yet God did the unexpected through him. Ahud was allowed in front of the king. Why? Without bodyguards. Why? No one thought that he could do, he would be the one that God would use to deliver the Israelites. A man who can't use his right hand, a man who looked weak, yet what did Ahud do? The unexpected. He killed his enemy. What does Jesus do? Well, he comes. People don't even recognize him, even though they tell him who he is. And he kills his enemy. Sin. Death, Satan, complete victory. And what Ahud kind of does, if you look at it, it foreshadows to what Jesus is ultimately going to do. Ahud and all the judges bring deliverance, but there's a timetable on it. They're faulty. Remember, they're broken saviors. They can't ultimately save. What Jesus does is he comes to this world in an unexpected way. No one recognizes, most people miss it. 
But he rescues his people, not for 80 years, but he's ultimately going to rescue for eternity. And what Judges does, and this is kind of where it's interesting, this is how the Bible is so interesting. Judges does something. Judges tells you that God is going to send salvation in a way no one was expecting. And a lot of people were going to miss it. All right, so Judges kind of foreshadows this, and, and this story foreshadows this. Paul tells us that, that Jews and Gentiles and Greeks, they missed who Jesus was because he wasn't what they were expecting. The Jews were expecting my version, a king, a powerful leader, someone who was buff and tough, and someone who was going to be a king, who was going to be a mighty warrior. They're expecting someone to look like King David, but better than King David, who wasn't faulty. Other people, like the Greeks, they would have expected someone more theologic, like someone that was more scholarly, or someone that looked their look. But he, did, he, he didn't look that way. The Romans didn't recognize him, right? They killed him. They put him in a tomb. And guess what? Three days later, Jesus says, I'm back. And he stabs the heart of Satan and death and sin once and for all. But people missed what Jesus was trying to do. People missed who Jesus was. And what we kind of can learn from this is that Ahud kind of foreshadows this. The judges foreshadow this. But also, if we're not careful... We may miss who Jesus is because we have an idea. Some people miss who Jesus is because they have an idea of what a Savior should look like. They want a Savior who doesn't judge them, who doesn't condemn sin, who says, hey, you know what, if that makes you happy, go ahead and do it. There's a lot of people who are going to miss who Jesus is. Even though there's 300 prophecies about him that are fulfilled in him. There's four gospels that tell us how he lived and what he expected. And, there, and there's letters that Paul wrote that tell us exactly kind of what God wants us to do and what Jesus wants us to do. Yet we're going to miss it. But Ahud kind of points this picture that God saves through the unexpected and, and not the expected, right? None of it goes to plan. So that's kind of the first narrative we see that's important. But the second thing we see is where it gets more practical for, for you and for me is this. God will use the unexpected in your life to do the unexpected. Remember, we, we kind of started off saying, God doesn't always make sense. Or God doesn't work the way the world does. The world tells us the, the, to be big and be strong. You don't show any weakness. The world tells us, look out for ourselves. The world tells us, you know, only do what you think is going to bring success to you. God's like, that's not, that's not kind of, that's not always how I work. God's like, I want to use some unexpected things in your life. I want to use some weaknesses. Not just your strengths. I want to use some weaknesses. Go back to Ahud. What allowed him to get in front of the king? His weakness. What did God use that no one expected? His weakness. What did he do that was unexpected? Stabbed the fat king so much that his sword went into the king and he couldn't pull it out, right? He did the unexpected. But even in the Hebrew, the way that Ahud is described is he's described by what he couldn't do, not what he could do. He was described as a man who couldn't use his right hand, basically. But what's really interesting is that the one thing that he was described by what he couldn't do was ultimately his greatest strength. His greatest weakness was his greatest strength. Not because he made it that way, but because God made it this way. His whole life he was probably looked at as weaker. He was probably looked at as kind of funny. He was probably seen as a lesser human. And what God does is he takes that weakness that everybody else would have seen 
and he used it for his strength and his glory. And I just wonder how many of us in our lives, we, we go to the mirror. We're like, well, why can't my body look like this? Why can't I have this strength? Why am I so weak in this area? Why can't I be this or be that? Why can't I fit the mold of strength? Why can't I fit the mold that the world wants me to fit? And we concentrate on all the things we can't do. And by concentrating on all the things we can't do, what do we do? We miss all the ways God has made us able to do the things that he wants us to do. What am I trying to say? Well, what what I'm trying to say is this. Many of us lead our lives with our insecurities. I can't sing, so God must not want me to do this. I, I, I can't do this, or I'm not good enough, I'm not strong enough, I'm not this or that or that. What do we do? We label ourselves by our weaknesses. And what do labels do? Labels really dictate your future. There was a study done with students, and the researchers did this. They found that if you label students as lesser, as trouble students, and they find out about that label, but nothing else in their life changes, their home life doesn't change, their, you know, their friends' life, nothing major changes, that they will actually do less in school. They will do worse in school. If you take those same students and nothing changes in their life, and you label them as gifted as smart, but they're the same students, right? Nothing's changed in their lives, and they're aware of those labels. They will actually do better in school. Why? Because labels are powerful. And as adults, we label ourselves all the time. We may not think we do, but we do. And and the problem with labels is, is the longer you wear them, the more they determine your future, right? The, The more you wear your label, the longer they determine our future. If Ahab would have been like, oh, I'm just left-handed, weak man, I can't do anything, blah, 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 blah. I don't think God could have ever used them because he wouldn't have been open to it. And I, and I, and I was reading this story and the, the hard thing with judges is, man, sometimes it's really hard to find like, okay, where does this fit in our lives? And one thing came to my mind is this, that maybe the weakness that you think is holding you back is exactly what qualifies you to be used by God. Maybe that thing that you think is the ultimate weakness is what's qualifying you to be used by God. I've seen this over and over again in in people's lives around me, uh, in my life. You know what's interesting is when I went to Bible college, the students that I thought were going to be the, the really, really good ones, the one from the strong Christian homes, the one who were good students, God hasn't used them in the way of some of my friends who nobody would have thought could make it. And, and in my life, I've seen this, and, I, and I've shared this before with you guys, but I grew up and I, I had to take speech class. I took speech class from the time I was in kindergarten to way, 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 way past the point most people do, right? So I would sit there and we would go over hundreds to thousands of words, just repeating, just repeating, just repeating, right? I, I just, I had a, a speech problem. I couldn't speak, right? I, I just, it was bad and I hated it. It was embarrassing and I hated going to speech. I hated that I had to miss recess sometimes to go to speech class. Like, it was not, I, I didn't like it. And 
then, you know, then uh, I had a reading problem. We couldn't figure out, like, why can't he read? Like, why is he not advancing? Like, you know, when they do the birds and, and like, the eagles at the end, and then there's, like, penguins at the beginning, and they can't fly. That was me. I was always the penguin, right? I got put in special groups with people. I thought, like, hey, listen, like, I'm just in special groups. I couldn't read, right? So I can't speak. Can't read that well because I have dyslexia, right? They found that out way later. And then on top of that, I have ADD. So like, I can't pay attention real well. So like, I don't know if you're a teacher or you're going to school, but someone who can't speak real well, read well, real well, and pay attention real well, guess what they don't do well in? School, right? Uh, school was a struggle for me. It was a struggle, struggle. So when we would, st when we would sit down and you're in high school and junior high and you do these c career assessments and they're like, what do you want to be when you grow up? I, I didn't know, but I knew a couple things I didn't want to do. I didn't want to talk in front of people. I didn't want to have to read and write. And I didn't want to have to sit at a desk. And God must have laughed all those years at me and says, this is, here's what you're going to do. You're going to speak in front of people every single week. You're going to write sermons every single week. Like research papers. I hated writing research papers. Some of your job is going to be involved not at a desk, but there's going to be times where you have to sit at a desk. And, God, and if you don't believe in miracles, I'm going to tell you, it's a miracle that I can get up here every week and have a, certain, a sermon written. Because if you were in my office, in my mind throughout the week, you would have no idea how this actually becomes words and says something and we get to something that makes sense. But God says this. He goes, Nathan, I'm going to use what you perceive as your greatest weaknesses. Right? And I'm going to use them. And here's why. So you don't get the credit. I get the credit. This isn't because of me. I take no credit on anything that happens up here. I, I, I'm dis I, I work through it. And I allow God to use me. But God gets the glory. And here's what I, I wish I would have learned. Is that your weakness makes you more dependent on God. And I wish I would have learned that it was okay for that. Because what are we taught? Fix all your weaknesses. Fix all your weaknesses. Fix all your weaknesses. Lead from your strengths. Lead from your strengths. Lead from your strengths. And God are, is going to use your strengths in other ways, right? He will use them. But I think where God gets the most glory is when he uses our weaknesses. So if you go throughout the Bible and you see people God uses, like we often think God's going to use what we think is our ultimate greatest strength. And ultimately, the, a lot of times are the areas we have that are our greatest strength is where we feel most confident. And the areas in our life where we feel most confident for most people, not all people, is where we push out God and we don't lean on God the most. Where we feel weak is where we often lean on God. So here, here's what's interesting. Moses, Scripture says, basically was a shepherd before he was the guy who rescued the Israelites. In his mind, his greatest strength was probably being a shepherd. Peter, what was Peter? Peter was a fisherman. Peter probably, it was, his dad was probably a fisherman. His grandpa was probably a fisherman. He fished. His greatest strength in his life before Jesus was probably being a fisherman. What did Jesus say? Hey, I know your greatest strength is fishing, uh, being a fisherman and catching fish. You're going to go out and fish men. And on you, Peter, I'm going to build my church. Right? Your weakness makes you more dependent on God. And here's what's awesome. God uses your weaknesses, the unexpected, to display his power so that others will see and give him glory. When God uses your weakness, it's for his glory. And so it's interesting. We realize that when we see our weaknesses, and we all have them, it shows us how fallen we are. 
But what if we leaned into these weaknesses? Because if our, if our weaknesses give more glory to God, if we lean into that, and God uses those weaknesses, won't you feel the presence of God a little bit more in your life? Won't you feel like, man, God, you're really intervening. You're really doing something I can't do on my own. And what's awesome is you can use that weakness to say, hey, listen, this isn't me. It's not me. It's God working through me. If I was on my own, whew, my life would be a mess. God takes this weakness, you guys know, and he uses something, he uses it to display his power. Don't always look at your weakness as something you need to change. Because I think it's interesting. God uses people who struggle with addiction and came out of it. And that's a great weakness. But he uses them to minister to people who went through addiction to come out of it. God uses people who are in prison and change their life to help people come out of prison and change their lives. That was their greatest weakness. God uses people from broken marriages or, or widows or people who've gone through something major in their life because of something they did to minister and lead other people. Their greatest weaknesses, their, the, the moments in their lives where they say, that was my greatest weakness. And God says, you know what? I can use that for my glory. And God does it over and over again. God uses those who admit they have weaknesses and depend on his power, yet still make themselves available to be used by him. Man, God doesn't use, all, God doesn't always use the greatest strengths. He uses people who are available and say, God, here's my weaknesses, use them for your glory. If we go back to our story with Ahud, I, I love this. Because right after this man who has these weaknesses has the, killed this king, what does he say? For the Lord has, get, has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. Not I have. The Lord has. The Lord has used my weakness to deliver you, to deliver the enemy into your hands. God used Ahud to show the Israelites his glory. So the question we have, and I just want to, as we continue with the series, is ask this question for you. Will you allow God to use the unexpected weaknesses in your life to do the unexpected? Will you lean into those insecurities, the weaknesses that you perceive in your life, and allow God to do the unexpected? But you're like, hey, I'm not strong enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not whatever enough. God says, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. But I am. So will you run to the Father who says, listen, I know you're flawed. I know you're broken. That's what's so interesting about weaknesses. Understanding you're weak points to the very reason we need a Savior. Understanding we're weak should lead us in the arms of Jesus who is perfect, who is strong, who is the unexpected Savior that did something unexpected, defeated death and sin and Satan for all time. And his great promises, lean into me and I'll do something in your life. Not for your glory, but for my glory. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful that you take us weak and broken jars, God, and broken vessels, and you, you want to use us in your story. Not for us, for our glory, but for your glory. It is, it's understanding that, you know, God, you, we're not perfect, that we are flawed, 
but you still love us and you still use us. And we thank you for that. We thank you for the book of Judges. Even though we don't always understand it, sometimes it's hard to apply to our lives, God. We're so thankful for, the, for you and your word that ultimately points us always to Jesus. God, in just a few moments, we're also going to take communion. And as we take communion, God, let us, lean, let us lean in this table with our weaknesses. Let us remember that Jesus had to die because of our weaknesses. Ultimately, the greatest weakness of all time, sin. And let us remember that tonight. In your name we pray. Amen. It's been great hanging out with you guys today. I hope that message challenges you and encourages you today. We would love to have you on campus sometime at one of our services at 8.30 or 10.45 on Sunday. Or to find out more information about RSEC, you can always go to the RSEC Family app. Or follow us on any social media platform at RSEC Family. Most of all, remember, you matter. Not because I say you matter, but because God says you matter. Now go and be blessed.